Whenever I say your name, when you're not around, I do it to the tune of Nasty Boys by Janet Jackson. I don't know why. But I, 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 don't, I don't care why. I just love it. I just, I'm, in, man. I'm just glad, uh, I'm glad you think of me. I, for you, I, I always do Mercedes Boy. How does that go? Let's see. Do you want to ride on my John Roderick? Oh, well, right. that sounds. I never realized how dirty your name sounds. You're like Peter O'Toole. <laughs> That's, I'm stealing that from Groucho Marx There are so many ways I'm like Peter O'Toole And a few crucial ways I'm not You're tall, you're slender, you're English mm-hmm. You were in that, Dashing. in that Pixar movie I like Drunk I enjoy him, I really enjoy him what was the other? One? There's another one on uh, NPR There's a show that's sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation I laugh out loud every time I hear that <laughs> I want Robert to be a dick name, too, just because if you can get the triple threat. Dick Wood Johnson. <laughs> His lesser-known brother, Richard. They, didn't, when they, <laughs> they couldn't name the foundation after him. They, just, they found the grants were just disappearing. <laughs> I, I, as you know, I'm not a physicist. But, uh, well, well you sell yourself short. You're sweet. <laughs> I, my question is, do you think there might be some chance that you have some kind of a slight electrical charge that causes any electronic devices in your vicinity to fail? Well, it's interesting. I, I don't believe in curses. And I am I'm much more inclined to attribute the fact that all my uh, equipment, my, my computer equipment in particular, fails. I, I attribute that to the fact that computers are... Computers, although we, we use them every day and we think that they're great, they are at the level of development that the airplane was... When it was powered by bicycle motors and had had to have seven guys on each wing to get them aloft, like we are still at the dawn of this era, and these machines, my apple here in front of me, which I, which I love, it's very beautiful. I'm caressing it now, but it is a it is a it is utter horse. It doesn't do any of the things that it claims to do. It doesn't do any of them. It doesn't do any of the things that it even manages to eke out. It doesn't do those things well, and it just sits here on my tabletop as a, um, as like a, like a, a talisman of all of all the the potential. I mean, I can imagine what it would do. It, I, I can imagine that my children will will love their computers and watch movies on them, live streaming, and there will be no glitches. But for me, it's just. It's just, um, it's all potential. It's, there's no kinetic energy to these things. I find, I, I find that baffling. You seem like you, hmm, I, I, just for what it's worth, I, I don't know if there's a clinic or something you can go to, but you should check the oh. charge thing because I think you live hard and you play hard. I think you're hard, mm-hmm. you're hard on things. What, you, what, you're, what you're thinking of is sexual chemistry, and that doesn't okay. affect computers. I do have it. It is powerful, but as far as I know, it, does, it shouldn't affect the computers. I, I, you know what? You know what? I would run a connectivity diagnostic to see, but it it would uh, it would only tell me that the computer was having problems and couldn't connect. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna, uh, you know, a lot of diag. The word diagnostic means diagnose. Hmm. And um, you can't tell you what the U dub. That's good. <laughs> the, the root of diagnostic 
diagnose uh-huh. from Di- the Greek. Diagnose, okay. From the Greek gnos, which means to know what is the problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I and, run and, and, and dia, meaning uh, across. Dia, uh, across or to lose weight. Hmm. Um, and uh, this, it, the diagnostic program does nothing. It just tells me that it can't connect. Hmm. And then there's something else that can't connect. And then pretty soon I'm walking around reading a book out loud to myself and, and, and happier, frankly. See, you strike me as somebody who is not a, a uh, term Luddite is overused. You're not a willful Luddite, but you seem to revel in, in the physical objects of life more than the virtual things. And when you use these tools, you, you, uh, you seem to use them for a purpose. I don't see you just kind of sitting around... Well, I don't see you, you know, noodling, but then I know you're an MP3 tagger, so you noodle a little. You know, I would I would dick around on the computer happily, but it, it but it just it fails to live up to my expectations. I'll see you have big hands. I do have big hands. You might be hitting and, hitting two keys at once or something. You know what? This whole idea that maybe it's the sexual chemistry thing, I'm going to look into that cuz it, it's possible. It that that has caused me problems in other walks of life. Mhm. Sure. Um I mean, it gets me out of traffic tickets when the woman, when the cop is a woman. But, sure. Uh, but so the local, local Cinemax, local Cinemax Police Department. But here's the thing: the problem is you're going to go to UW. You're going to go to the the highly lauded, I believe, sexual chemistry clinic, and mm-hmm. there's going to be some lady who's working on a graduate degree. She's probably got her hair in a bun. She's got big, big, big glasses. You're going to mm-hmm. walk in there and you're going to say, "Please find out what my problem is. Help me." Right. Help me. But there, yeah. right there, that's the root of the problem. Before she even gets the clipboard out, the hair is down, the glasses are off. That's right. And and she's up on the desk, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then Alex Van Halen plays a drum solo, <laughs> and then this happens to me on a weekly basis. I don't even know how Alex knows where I am. He seems to always know where I'm going to be. He's good with those. He plays the uh, and that song. You talk about the hop for teacher. He plays like the double double uh, double kick drum thing. He does that right. He does, but it isn't a double double kick drum. As far as I know, it's a pedal, Alex du- Van Halen, double pedal, double pedal. It's not a double pedal. As far as I know, he is playing that with a single kick drum pedal. He must have outstanding ankles. I bet that's true. Hmm. He's eventually going to get to an age where he's going to have to get one of those uh, Def Leppard deals. He's going to have to get everything triggered. What a fake arm! Does he? Does he have a? F- I thought he was just rolling, you know, rolling uh, mono. <laughs> Third arm. You were a Def uh, Le- you were you were a big Def Leppard fan back in the day, right? The, the, the pre the pre Pyromania era Def Leppard was big yeah. For you. Pyromania was the um, was the the bridge that I had a hard time crossing. Everything before Pyromania, I thought was solid gold uh, because it is solid gold. Pyromania now, I look back, I realize it's a great record. At the time, very hard for me to uh, to swallow some of those keyboards and all that. Yeah, and, and the, but the thing is, back in the day, their guitar player was like 15. Yeah. It was amazing. Now, this is all before Shania Twain, right? This is, this is Mutt Lang. For, for, Shania for, Twain? What are you talking about? Is that my not... God, is that, I'm going to have to wash my ears out. Is that record not produced by Robert Mutt, Mutt Lang, who also did Highway to Hell, I believe? Yeah, but, but, he, but Shania Twain was like 15 years later, I think. Okay, I'm just saying, but you go back, you go back, you listen, even to Bring It On The Heartbreak, and there is a certain polished, glitzy shininess to that that you would not hear in Venom. Or, well, or, your, well, beloved, I, or your beloved Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to hear it in Venom, for sure. Uh, yeah, but that polish, you know, ACDC, you can polish ACDC all day long. It's still going to be hardcore, rough and I, I think that's why that record stands up so well, though, is that the songs were tighter. I'm sure he had an influence on that. The songs, I mean, I love, you know me, we go back. We go back with the ACDC, but I'm telling you, 
I think for a Bond's post-Bond Scott record, I think that one stands up pretty well, and it's partly because it's very listenable. It's super listenable, and I think what Mutt Lang did then is what producers should do, which is they listen to the band and they say, yeah, that's good. Did you think about trying a little harder next time? <laughs> did you think about trying a little harder on the next take? Like, sing it like you mean it and play it like you mean it. Okay, go. And and uh, I think in the last 10 years, last 20 years, producers, I mean, every kid with a, with a Macintosh computer and GarageBand now calls himself a, a producer. Ouch. And the band's, yeah, I know. Present company accepted. Sure. Merlin, you are a brilliant producer. Mm. But there are a lot of people out there who are, actually, who are actually selling themselves to bands as producers. And the bands come in, they play their song, and the guy, you know, turns some reverb on, and he goes, sounds great. <laughs> and it doesn't sound great, you know, but the, but the guy that, that's recording them doesn't know enough to, to, say, to say one thing or the other, to say, like, hey, um, you know, kill that second snare hit or whatever. The, 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 little, the little details that, that producers, that, that good producers add to make good records great. That's yeah, what Mutt Lang was no, doing no, in, the, in the old days. And no matter how much I spend, like, I, I, I don't know how to describe this, but like, and I have never done anything I've ever done and recorded since whatever, 1986, has never been anything as meticulous as what you do, because you really do, like, you have the ears to hear these little things, and I, I know you've got that, but I mean, like, today, with the, I love GarageBand, just because I think of it almost like, I guess it's like the difference between an Etch-A-Sketch and having a big box of paint. Like I know the I, I think I know the limitations of this, and I just love it because it's so fast for me. Yeah, right. And I've gotten really comfortable using it. But you know what's weird is I go back and um, what was I listening to? Oh, this band, what are they called? Cheer Accident. I was listening to, and it's mm. like I just the latest thing I bought, and um, it's just you go back and you listen to any of those. You listen, well, obviously Pink Floyd's a bad example. You go back and listen to like pretty much any record by somebody good, uh, Colton's record, and like there's like I, I said in this interview with Colton the other day, like there's so much like personality to every song. They all sound different. It doesn't just sound like somebody selected stadium in in the output setting, you know. Uh -huh. And it it doesn't, you know. Every tracks it's it's great. It's great for prototyping. But that's one thing I like about uh, one of the main things I like about your music, like about your uh, your records, is that there's there's so much there is a lot of personality. And I don't know. So on the one hand, we talked about this. So we did some interviews a while back, and and we talked about how the process works for you at, at every level. And it seems like there's uh, a contrast between. It seems like you record with relative um I don't know what the word is, but it's not that you're sloppy or something, but like you've said, you're not gonna do forty two takes of a song, but then it seems like you you're very careful in the editing and listening and definitely in the in the track order process i mean you you almost seem to function more like an editor in some ways well there <clears throat> in terms of how many passes I'm willing to do on a on a vocal track uh, uh you're absolutely right i won't i won't sit and work on a vocal track as the performer all day. But I will be super meticulous about getting, about, you know, adding little surprise moments, little teeny tinkles and twinkles. And I think that some of that is that I came of age in the recording era when all that stuff became more and more possible. It's the John Vander Slicization of indie rock where you have the, you have the time, you have the resources, and you have the inclination to put a keyboard part on a song that will never reappear. That doesn't. That sound doesn't appear anywhere else on the record. It's just a. It's a two-second thing 
that that you feel like is 100% necessary on this tune. And if you if you think back to uh, when they recorded the House of the Rising Sun, right? They got four guys in a room and they said, "Roll it!" and they they ran the song and then then they started drinking like it. They <laughs> they didn't spend months and months putting little on there. Uh, they I mean what they did was they spent months and months rehearsing. Um, and that's something I guess in indie rock we don't do as much, or at least we don't do as much. It was also a time, though, it strikes me that that was a time when, yeah, it was certainly um, more primitive recording conditions, but tell me if you think this is wrong, but I think that's also rock music was not taken as seriously. It was not seen as an arty thing, like in whatever, 1964, 65. I mean, the Beatles were starting that, but I mean, it wasn't really until 67, 68 that people took the time and the, and the polish. And I wonder if in some ways it was just seen as more of a commodity you know, where Columbia Records had this giant roster of people, and they must have just, and certainly things like Phil Spector, I mean, they must have just said, okay, let's bring a bunch of pros in, you know, monkeys, whoever, you bring in a bunch of pros, and you just plow through this as fast as you can. Yeah, it's absolutely right. They did not think that 50 years from now, those tunes would still be not just relevant, but like the, 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 the underpinning foundation of what remains an entire industry of selling music and culture from 50 years ago. I mean, they made House of the Rising Sun, which they didn't write. It was a cover. They did it in one take, and they thought that it would go up the charts, and then it would go down the charts, and they and then that would be that. That would be the end of it. You'd never hear it again, you know. Or if you did, it would be some some Bobby Soxers playing it on their on their little collapsible record player. No one ever thought that House of the Rising Sun would still be played. 10 times a day on every classic rock radio station across the country and across the world, 50 years later, 40 years later. So you're right. They just, they jammed it out and they were like, next. And I think when we make music now in the aftermath of that, we're conscious, I think to our detriment, conscious of the fact that potentially we're making it for history. Potentially, one day at the Library of Congress, a man will sit down and listen to all the Long Winter's records, and he will identify the keyboard patches, <laughs> and it will be a matter of some import. Like, you think about it that way unconsciously because of the way we've all minutely dissected the Beatles records and, the, and all of those records that we love, the, the Pink Floyd records, like... Those of us who, are, who love recording, God, we know every single microphone they used on every single part and how many takes they did and da-da-da-da-da. And so when you're making music yourself, in light of that, I mean, you, can't, you almost can't help yourself. And and that's, that, that's a pretty and, high bar, though, if you're sitting oh, around trying to... Oh, it. it works against it. If you're hypo- just hypothetically trying to, I don't know, finish, finish a record, uh, uh, that's got to be, I mean, just you must have friends that have struggled with that at one point or another. Oh, uh, we all do. I, and I think... I think what's the the great bands, uh, and I'm talking about the the great bands of now, not the great bands of history, but the great indie rock bands of now. There's always at least one guy in the band that says, or one guy on their team that says, "This thing's got to get done by by Monday the 11th." And the other guys, you know, if they want to take all the time in the world to to screw with the tambourine part, Monday the 11th is a pretty hard. It's a hard date. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I have lacked being a free 
being a uh, sole proprietor and a free agent, um, no one has no one has the authority to tell me that it's that it's due on Monday the eleventh. And so <laughs> some, yeah. some have tried. So many many have tried. In fact, I've even like I've even sent people letters and said, let's like like when you when you call your uh, your wife at work and say tonight, let's pretend that you are a nurse coming home. Or uh, no, no, no! You're a nurse coming for a house call to help a man who has a problem. Very much like that, I have called some of my friends and said, "Let's pretend that you have some authority over me, and you are going to come, write me an angry letter, or grab me by the shirt collar, and tell me that my record has to get done by X day." Mm-hmm. And my friends have all been good sports about it. And they've showed up at my house in a nurse's costume, mm-hmm. and I've said, "No, no, I made the. <laughs> what did I send that email to you? Oh, you're, you're looking trust. for some kind of constraint. Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, not looking for. I mean, that's the problem. You can't, you can't empower somebody to have power over you. If you are empowering them, then the power is still yours. You you can't give them the power and then have it have any effect on you if you're." Unless you're really into role playing, right? So yeah, I've I've uh, I've tried to get somebody to to set a deadline, and up until now, I none of it has worked. But just recently, I got a email from my dear friend John Hodgman, and he said, "Get your record done by Labor Day." Sincerely, John Hodgman, <laughs> and. For some reason, the succinctness of that and reading it aloud in his voice, which brooks no argument, his, vo- his voice just naturally brooks no argument. You kind of, kind of, now you put it that way, you're right, it's kind of, it's got almost like kind of like a headmaster quality. That's right. If John Hodgman tells you something in the, in the, in, in a definitive voice, you don't, you're not going to like, if you do try and argue with him, you're just going to sound like you're whining. You know, he's going to say, no, your record should be done by Labor Day. Sincerely, that is all. Sincerely, John Hodgman. And it's actually, that has actually had had an effect on me. I've been Mm. working, I've been writing. um, Just, uh, I think it's because I hold him in high esteem. And so, uh, so it's a different, it's not, you know, it's not that I, I tasked him with, with the, uh, with the job of telling me to do it. He did it. He did it sort of independently as a, as a favor and as a writer who has struggled to complete his own work, he knows that you just, you do, you need an artificial wall. You know what else it is? Cause he's, uh, I feel like I've talked about him and uh, I don't know, like we're like, we're the best friends in the world and we're, we're not. He's just a guy who's really nice to me. Not as tight as you and him, but he, um, he's, he, he, he and people like him can have, I think can have a tremendous effect, not just because of being uh, an, an expert and former professional literary agent, but also it's just, it's, we've talked about this at length, that you're so surrounded by people, um, everybody is these days, especially with social media, especially in, in, in your rock biz. But like you're so surrounded by people who, who are not precisely sycophantic, but who never really say true things or, or would never say anything to you that was too far at odds with what they perceive to be your thing. And I, I only say that because like to, be, to have somebody who you really admire 
um, give you a note that shows they care about what you do and are interested in your output. Um, I find that to be a weird smack on the head. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes it makes you want to finish things. Other times it makes you wonder why I'm having trouble finishing it because maybe I don't think it's up to par for somebody like John. Uh, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like to me, I, that's really complicated. But don't don't you think? I mean, you've you've talked at length about this, like so many well, things. The, well, the, it the, is. It's yeah. a, you know you're surrounded. You've talked about you know you got everybody's trying to screw you and, and you know and, and steal your copper pipe and stuff. And <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what a great line. Uh, we'll put that in show notes. People can go and, and watch our extremely long interview where you yell at the hippies and drink seltzer. But but do you find that to be the case? I mean, you're surrounded by people going, hey, that, hey, man, that's great. Like, that's so awesome. I really like that thing you do with the thing. Well, yeah, it's just I, the, the, the sycophantic nature of our culture now is based on this false idea that, that, that nobody can handle the bad news. No, nobody, wants, no, nobody wants anyone to yell at them. And so, they're, so they work very hard to never say anything controversial, to never say anything that, that might possibly inspire someone to yell at them back, you know? And so people are talking to each other in this, in this, this uh, language of like completely veiled meaning all the time, in friendly talk, happy, friendly talk all the time. And I'm talking about specifically in the arts in the West, but, and, and, and artists have a tendency to do it because they, uh, to varying degrees, they all end up feeling screwed at one time or another by an interviewer. I, th- this has happened to you, I know. Where you, you, well, you yeah, you you reveal something that you would consider you're trying to be honest, and this yeah. isn't just me; it's everybody. But you say something, and you know, obviously, some of the interviews you you assume that they're interested in something. You you want to say something that you haven't said before, and right. by exposing yourself, I'm sure this has happened to you a million times. By exposing yourself, you get this. You get some kind of yeah. Silly, they make it. They, they they take they take the thing where you say, "Oh, that guy's a dick," and they make it the headline of their article. And you go, no, I don't think that guy's a dick. Well, especially was- if somebody came in going like the story, the the I feel like my assignment for this story is to get to basically hang out and wait and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, until this person <laughs> gives me the quote that I'm looking for. Yeah. And best evidence by things like I had an interview once that just I just stopped it after like five minutes. Because the person was like, Would you say that you <laughs> have really um kind of invented the productivity space online with a blog that has been as jaw-droppingly successful as yours has been. And I said to this person, like, not only would I not say that, but it's, I just can't even articulate to you how important it is that you not even pretend that I said that. Right. <laughs> and this is why I, I, as usual with interview, I won't name names because there's a lot of names that can be named when talking with you. But I, I know on at least a couple occasions you have basically said, "Okay, this interview's over. I'm going to write it and send it to you." <laughs> that will be the interview you publish. <laughs> I have done that. I was one I really liked. It was a little short interview <laughs> in a well-known indie uh, periodical, and uh, I read it. And I was like, "Man, that was a great interview." You don't always, you know, people don't always get you, and you're like, "Yeah, well, I wrote it for him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, uh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this easy on us both. I'm just going to write your questions and my answers, and uh, it'll work out great. Don't worry. I'll write your, I'll, I'll write your questions in your voice. Don't worry. I'll do this. But, sometimes, uh, when somebody, also... sometimes when somebody asks me for an interview, um, I'll start by mailing them back written 
pull quotes. This sounds this because this is I mean the whole industry is an artifice. It's it's not like we're sitting around you know talking about folk dancing or something. This is you know this is people who call you at the last conceivable moment for their deadline and are looking for something that they can jam into two hundred words or whatever. In most cases, right? If you're in like a like an actual magazine or something, it's not going to be some long setting aside like that wonderful strange interview years ago. You're not going to get like a five thousand word. Um, oh well, but even when even if you do. I mean, I, I the, the the interview that comes to mind for me, I did an, uh, a long feature in a national magazine at one point about uh, about some other musicians that I had just been touring with in Spain, and they were, you know, they were sort of legendary characters. And this interviewer was he was a super nice guy and a smart guy, and we sat and just talked all day, and it was it had it would it had been a very candid tour you know we were on tour together and i was there kind of in a junior capacity just like just sort of feeling lucky to be there and everybody on the tour was really great they they embraced please, please, me please don't please don't eat off matthew's craft services <laughs> <laughs> wasn't like that at all you know <laughs> and uh and by the end of the tour we were just like you know we we were speaking to each other uh as you do old friends so i'm giving this interview a long feature interview and this, then the, um, the interviewer knows all about this tour. And so he's, he's asking me all these questions like, so what was it like? And I, I, I'd only been back a week or so from this thing. So I'm still in this mindset. Like I'm incredibly close friends with these guys. My God, these guys are just a bunch of nuts and they're drunks and they're, well, these guys are just a bunch of heads. Woo. <laughs> and this guy's writing it down note for note and this this massive uh article about me comes out like heralding the release of my new record and all the pull co- quotes are like so anyway these guys are total drunks john rotter and i get an i get some angry phone calls from these people saying like what the f-? you know we let you into our our little scene and uh and this is you know the this huge national article and you're talking about us all through the thing and i was like but but no i i was i thought we i was doing it all like haha like we're friends and they were like boo right and there there are a couple of guys from that scene that still i mean the 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 guys from that that whole world that were that i was genuinely close to understood and it probably wouldn't have happened to them because they wouldn't have been, they, they would never have let their guard down that way in an interview. And it did happen to me and it sort of cauterized me a little bit, particularly about talking about other people. You know, I'll still let my guard down that way talking about myself. Mm-hmm. But if somebody says, so what do you think of Merlin Mann? I'm not going to say, he he's looks four- he looks bony in his underwear. <laughs> he's a four flusher and a double dealer, <laughs> and he is his bacon sucks. <laughs> he's a shitty bacon cook, and I think worst dad in the world. What about that? <laughs> worst dad in the world. You can you can quote me on that. I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, because because you you don't have any power over how that gets how that gets received. But there are these guys guys who I respected and guys who and still respect and guys who I enjoyed their company who if I meet them at some big 
rock thing. Like I did. I ran into one of them in the lobby of a hotel in Barcelona one time. And he kind of was like, oh, hey. <laughs> and I, and on a, you, you, there's only so many times you can like fall Let to Let me one. guess, in a slightly indeterminate European <laughs> accent. <laughs> uh, hey. Oh, uh, uh, hey. <laughs> and, you know, you can't every time you see the guy grab him again and say, look, I'm still really sorry I called you a drunk in that magazine, even though you are a drunk. But I know that's just between you, me, and everybody that's ever met you. But come this is, on. This is an, see, here's the thing, John. This is an occupational hazard for you that I think you should turn into an occupational benefit. Hmm. Uh, because you are... Um, it's an opportunity stakes. It's an opportunity stakes. No, that's funny. Good. That's a good one. That's I, not I, I, I know. I did my Bob Odenkirk impression the other day, and I was really embarrassed. But um, <laughs> to foodie break, the, uh, here's the thing. <laughs> you, you, um, you, know, you, can, you can play sly about this, but I know how much you enjoy being the bull in the china closet. And the part that makes that uh, complicated is is uh, not the bull, but the china closet. I mean, sometimes maybe I, I think you're in the wrong store. And I, I told you a long time ago, I think you're coming around to this now that you are a, a pundit. But I've said a long time ago, like I, I, uh, I told you, uh, I, I consider you our generation's Charles Nelson Riley. Like I, I think you should, I think if there is a venue, you know what I mean? You're the kind of person that would have been on Mike Douglas mm-hmm. and uh, whatever, Jack. Maybe I would have enjoyed that. You know what I'm saying, though. You like I, I could see. I consider you, uh, pundit's the wrong word, a, a bon vivant or a raconteur or some other kind of slightly gay word. Like That's I nice. think, I think of you not in a good way. Like uh, the thing is, you're. This is the thing about you, and this has been my counsel to you for like 16 years now, or however long it's been. Is that is that you? Um, it seems to me that like creating uh, excellent rock music uh, is is a facet of of what you do. Uh, and I just want to say, I, th- I think there was a time when you poo-pooed that because you regarded yourself, and clearly that was your employment. You know, you've been putting out these great records uh, for in one way or another since since the late '90s. And uh, I just wonder, has that changed at all? Because I see you being a funny guy on on Twitter now. I see you going and doing what, like a report from Bonnaroo. You uh, had a column in was it the Believer? Uh, you've you've but you're doing more stuff where. By virtue of the fact that you are a bull in a china closet, that attracts people to want you to go and put that voice somewhere that's it's not just around a lot of, as you've called it, don't yell at me music. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's that's inevitable because I because I do like to talk and I like to hear the sound of my own voice. Yes. And I like to open up a newspaper and read the smart thing that I said to someone accurately transcribed with the correct punctuation. Um, but also I think the world, the world has a, a lot of people who have arrived on the scene and said, I am a maker of opinions. And that is only appealing so far because the, because it begs the question every time, why do I give a about your opinion? I have an opinion too. Everybody's got one. And what the world doesn't have a lot of is people who have made enough stuff that you can have a sense of where they're coming from, that they, that they are a maker of things. So when they, when they venture an opinion about something else, you have some context to, to judge whether or not you consider that person an authority. You know, for, for the, the, the internet, uh, the, the, the people whose opinions I value about 
about pretty much any topic are people who have done any work of any kind in in their own venue. So, it, like I when, when I used to write film reviews for The Stranger, uh, which is the alt, alternative newspaper up here in Seattle, before I got my column for The Weekly, which is the other alternative newspaper in Seattle. But The Stranger would send me to review documentary films, and they did it because... I knew nothing about documentary films, but they liked that I had a, that I had a voice that stemmed from being an artist. So I would watch these documentary films and I wouldn't have any of the, I wouldn't have the language of a film critic. I wouldn't be able to, you know, I wouldn't sit there and say, ah, this film is just a copy of this other French film that, that happened 25 years ago and has, and, and negates the need for this film. You know, I had none of that. I would watch the film and I would judge it on my own tastes and on the merits of what I saw. And so I, w- when I look out at the internet, you know, when I see you comment on something or when I see Amy Mann comment on something or when I see Paul F. Tompkins comment on something or Hodgman for, uh, or any of, the, any of the people that we know who started creating, who started making art at some point or another in their lives and had success uh, had 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 success either early or late based on the merits of the thing that they were like compelled to make all of a sudden their opinion is like gold to me on any topic you know i would listen to amy mann talk about the the climate change well <laughs> Maybe not climate change, but I would listen to Amy Mann talk about a whole talk host about of things topics. that are real, John. <laughs> I would, I would. That's right. Now, I don't want to hear her talk about a hoax like climate change, but I want to hear her talk about kind of whatever on her mind because her she's, song, she's been interesting and independent for a really long time. So she's uh, she's someone, who, and I think I know the kind of folks you're talking about, the kind of folks you and I will follow on Twitter or have conversations with. And it's you're right. I mean, it's it's people. It's it, it, I totally agree with you. And this this is a theme that I notice a lot of my friends seem to share, uh, or at least say they share, which is that personally, a lot of your friends are liars. You mean? Yes, yes. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. Otherwise, you know, I don't think I could tolerate it. Uh, but the. Uh, I think a lot of people I know and admire would say that it's not even that I – I don't even have to like what you do. On some level, I may not even need to totally understand what you do, but I love – this is a kind of rehash of what you said. But I, I, I'm very interested in talking to anybody about what they do, especially if they're really good at it, mm-hmm. and to hear them speak in some specificity about things like contrast – distinctions, quality, difference. And and these are the kinds of things that, that you know, this is an extremely reductive thing to say, but there's a lot of stuff on the internet that really is a, about a thumbs up. They may not even give you a thumbs down. There's not really, there's not a, a huge amount of nuance. You run into this all the time on Twitter with, with some very funny Holocaust-related material. And I think, I think the, <laughs> I think not, not strictly Holocaust, probably the Warsaw Ghetto, but the point being, like, do you know what I'm saying? I, I, somebody like you, like, part of what makes, makes you so amusing uh, to the people who think you're amusing is that there really is something very, very wry about it that is not going to travel well in a, in a retoot to somebody who, for whom English is not a first language. So that might right. get passed around more like that. I, I don't know. I wonder what you think about that because you strike me as somebody with a lot of curiosity 
about, gosh, just so many uh, things that people do that are not indie rock and Twitter. And uh, do you think there's a thread there? I mean, it seems to me that these are people who, who are interested in, in real things and saying real things uh, more than simply uh, miming what seems to be something other people would expect from them. Well, it's hard, <clears throat> it's hard on the listener if, I mean, a, a lot of the things that I say, this podcast, for instance, I'm sure burns a lot of people's ears because they're not used to hearing people talk in a tone of voice even that is contentious with, without, the, without it devolving into a fight, you know? And you and I can sit and talk for six hours and to, the, to somebody sitting at the table next to us, it would sound like we were having an argument the entire time. It's the Larry David problem. Everything out of both of our mouths sounds like it's some kind of, con, you know, we're making some contention. And the other person, you do this to me all the time. You're like, no, 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 no. And then you agree with me. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> but if, you know what that. it is? You know, I think it's perceived, and I, this is not peculiar to, to you and me, but I think uh, loudmouths like us, I think when, uh, in a certain context, it can come out as, yes, a judgment, but a judgment that really demands a response. And and I... I want to make a slight bridge to, to a, a bigger and broader point here, which is that I, in getting to your, your stuff you've done, your record you're working on, some changes you've had in your life, but I wonder, I wonder if in some ways it's this expectation of a certain kind of familiarity where it could be vanilla or it could be French vanilla or it could be vanilla with strawberries, but like it still needs to be that one flavor. And mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. expecting, it's almost like you hand somebody, uh, uh, they think they're getting an iced tea, but you hand them a Dr. Pepper. And their palate is is not really ready for that. And it's I don't think it's anything wrong with them. It's not anything wrong with us. It's just that that's not the way that a lot of people talk to each other. And the thread I'm trying to find through a lot of this is it seems like it seems like today it feels like there's a lot of advantage to fostering familiarity. Right? And that goes right back to putting out animals records because you know, we know that'll sell, you know. Yeah. Uh it, it but it's go- all, but it's also the balkanizing of the balkanizing and and repackaging and fetishizing of really small cultures that uh and sort of the 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 um the the constant pandering that entertainment does to us now you know there there's very little there's very little in the way of music or um or film that or, you know, and in a lot of ways, or novel writing that is genuinely challenging. We're all pretty, we're all pretty well, we're all pretty self-aware now and we're all pretty uh, cynical. And so what we want is for, to talk about Star Wars and what we want is somebody to write a feel, the feel-good movie of the summer. And nobody wants, I mean, there is no modern Oscar Wilde because who, who you know who was a polymath and a social critic and a you know like you say a, a, contra- a, contra- a contrarian a contrarian but also a contrarian in realms that were truly dangerous you know that he ultimately in some uh, was put on trial for and convicted and, and imprisoned um, and none of those those stakes don't really exist in the same way so somebody can be a, a a, a social critic and a polymath and a bon vivant and eh, either you like him or you don't change the channel. I'm going to go listen to the polymath that I think is funny. And, and so with that, 
you lose the the frisson of kind of being captivated by somebody that you don't like or captivated by somebody whose opinion gets under your skin. And so and that has an effect on the creators, right? So a lot a lot of the people on Twitter that I respect God, they they work so hard for a thumbs up, you know? Everybody on the internet is just trying to get a thumbs up. And frankly, I don't give a about a thumbs up. And that's a and and what what happens then is that you you risk not having 250,000 Twitter followers because a lot of people are like I give that a thumbs down. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And it's over. Your relationship with them is over. They're never going to come back. They, they read one thing you wrote about some inconsequential thing. They misinterpreted it in the first place because they don't know you. They don't know your context. And all of a sudden, you're just, well, you're off their list. And so there is no room for, sir, I take umbrage at what you've said, but... <laughs> I admire the language you used. So continue on. Carry on. We would like to extend a very special thanks to our friends at MailChimp for sponsoring Dan's sabbatical from Back to Work. Uh, As you may know, we love these guys. Uh, If you don't know MailChimp, well, shame on you. It's a great service that helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, and then integrate them with the services you already use. Uh, Best of all, you can track your results, which is aces in my book. Uh, It is, as I like to say uh, to my wife and anyone who listens, it's like your own personal publishing platform. And it is. It's really cool. It's really pretty. Uh, It's a service that Dan and I both use, and we enjoy it. So please do check them out at MailChimp.com. And seriously, MailChimp has been a really good friend of 5x5, and uh, we know they'll be a swell pal for you too. So please go, MailChimp.com. We really appreciate MailChimp supporting 5x5, Back to Work, and especially Dan's sabbatical from Back to Work. Thanks, guys. It's almost like if the clash if the clash started today, they wouldn't be successful in, in unless Joe Strummer followed you back. <laughs> and because because now I mean what I'm gathering from what you're saying in part is that you know e- e- gosh even five years ago this was different but it's funny how today partly from market forces partly from social media partly from all of this uh, the sort of sub markets you discuss the the consumer, whether it's a consumer of, of toots or a consumer of, you know, downloads or consumer of anything, in some ways, don't you think that the consumer sets the expectation in a way that's really fundamentally different than the producers have historically been used to? Oh, absolutely. You could no, no, I'm, make... I'm not saying that's good or bad or like you want to respond oh, by pandering to that. No, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, there was a time when part of what made punk rock so bracing for people, setting aside the economic conditions in England and stuff like that, part of it was that conf- the, the confrontational part of that. Part of what made continues to make – like Marcel Duchamp is, is still – mind-boggling to me like i I forget about marcel duchamp then i'll go look at his stuff and especially i'll read about his stuff and uh i mean gosh maybe even more than picasso he was he was doing stuff and i'm not just talking about the urinal i'm just talking about everything he did was just a a thing that he did and he wasn't worried about like whether you got it he was he was really but i think it it would be hard not to have seen almost everything in, in the dadas and all that it was really hard not to see everything they did as being somewhat confrontational by design, and, and I think that kind of we could talk about new wave movies, whatever. These are things that were meant to challenge your expectations of the medium and to make you rethink uh, at a at a pretty deep level uh, how you see uh, and process this stuff. You know, there's, there's one last thing. Uh, Wild, gosh, Wild's such a great character. There was um, 
an essay he wrote a long time, <laughs> a long time ago called The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Uh, or was it that or The Artist is Critic? But there's one where he wrote about how after the Impressionists, you never see water the same way again. And I happen to think that's true. Once you've mm-hmm. really seen a giant S. Monet at, uh, you know, at MoMA or something, you don't, water looks like an Impressionist painting now. I mean, part of the role, uh, sorry the babble, but the part of the role of, of art has always been to help you reshape the way that you see things. And you're not going to fundamentally have an impact with people if you're mainly trying to iterate on something that won't be too jarring to people. That's true, except that you'll never see water the same way again after you've seen the Impressionists. But there was only one time in history where one minute there were no Impressionists and then there were. Right and and Oscar Wilde was was there for that. Now we're we're taken to see impressionist paintings in museums when we're five years old on kindergarten tours, and so for us personally, in a lot of ways, there never was a time that we did that we saw water without also knowing about the impressionists, and the impressionistic paintings of water ultimately are now we see them as as the you know kind of a close up as a used as a backdrop for a coca-cola ad or whatever and and the impact of those things and the amazement that that's absolutely still possible but it requires more work you don't just you don't just get introduced to it and sit there and have your mind blown anymore you have to you have to stare at it and go back to a place where your mind is capable of being blown in order to have it be blown again because your eye can just you know can can see this stuff just as as uh, wallpaper. I, I just speaking of Duchamp, I went with a good friend of mine, the musician John Wesley Harding, uh, who is also the novelist Wesley Stace. He took me to the Philadelphia Museum of Art collection of Duchamp uh, stuff earlier this year, and I spent. It took me a half an hour just being in the presence of the work to reset my brain so that I could even look at it without, without just seeing it as all the things that were derived from it, mm-hmm. without seeing it as, as just a bunch of construction paper or just somebody like trying out some ideas. I mean, I had to sit with it. And this is true, I think, of any art, frankly. It's definitely, to, it's definitely true of... of- of, of paintings, and I think it's really true of poetry. With it, uh, and my, my 20th century painting teacher, best class I took in college, really got got this through me when she put these slides up and she'd say, okay, this Helen Frankenthaler color field thing you're looking at is, it's going to look really faded on this old slide, but if you, when you see one of these, imper- like when you see your first um, Van Gogh, and you see the impasto, and you see there's like almost half an inch of paint at some points. You get, oh my gosh, this guy really, this guy was really, he had a lot going on. This is more than just a blue and yellow thing of a field. Like this is, this is, you can really see this guy's soul in these little pointy bits of paint. And with poetry, like hearing Richard Hugo, you know, read Degrees of Grey in Phillipsburg is really different than scanning it on a Tumblr page. It's, it's very, very different. Well, but, <clears throat> so now extend that, Extend that to uh, to some indie rock music that took three years to write and record, and you know, and imagine how many people are gonna rip it into their iTunes and give it 
even <laughs> one thousandth that much attention, you know, clear their mind, put it on, not be listening to it while they're surfing the internet, not be listening to it while they're doing the dishes. <laughs> I have to jump in here. <laughs> I was at your house. I guess we're at your mom's house. I remember sitting in the dining room and you were like, okay, like I've done before, I'm going to let you listen to this. <laughs> I'm going to let you listen to this. These are, these are the, <clears throat> I, I think some was, when was, um, when was departure and teaspoon? What, what era was, I know teaspoon. Uh, that would have been two early 2006. Okay. So we sit down, you've got like a CD or something and we sit down and every single time you, you've been very generous with letting me, there's, I, you've sent me stuff that's not out that I love. Mm. And like, you would get so pissed that I would not, like you, just sit and literally just listen to the music. Yeah. Eyes and closed, I'm, head down. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, and I've done that with you. I've been like, you got to listen to this. And you're like, well, turn off the TV. I'm like, don't do anything. And all I can hear is a little bit of from that bleed, you know, bleed from the headphones and you breathing very, very loudly, which I'm not, I don't know if you know you do that very, very loudly. But, and you sit there and 100% of your attention goes to that. And I'm just thinking when you're committing something like the commander thinks aloud to um, <laughs> to tape to to hard drive, like mm-hmm. you must you really are thinking. I have to guess about some version of you sitting there with the headphones on, breathing heavily, and really focusing 100. percent And that, that's that's what you make though. You're you're not making you're not making stuff for somebody to listen to once on a jog and in a shuffle. You're you're trying to create some. I'm projecting here, but it well, strikes me that that's that's a big part of what you do. When I'm sitting in the studio, I'm absolutely making the music for the person that is either sitting in a dark room with their headphones on, listening to it with their eyes closed, or driving in a car with the stereo on super loud, driving through some vineyards like in Northern <laughs> California. I mean, those are the characters. No wonder that, it takes you so long to put out a record. My that's God. That's making it for. The vineyard but, people. <laughs> but as a... That's right. My people. But as a, as a writer... The feedback I get from people is, oh, my God, I, for the last three weeks, every time I get on the Stairmaster, my iTunes brings up one of your tunes. And so I started thinking of you guys as like my Stairmaster band. And that is so awesome. Now I love you guys. That's such a giant compliment, though, John. It's a massive compliment. I don't I don't take it as a I don't take it the wrong way at all. But. But it, it's so it's so uh, it's so not how my like uh, not how I consume uh, things that I love or me or media of any kind that I have to just let that be. I can't I can't uh, because I cannot find an entry point for myself into that. Like your stairmaster band, cool. My, my, mine was in, mine was always Interpol. Was your stairmaster band? Well, they, when they first put out that Bright Lights record. That was, and I was exercising for that very short window of time. It was always Interpol. You know, yeah. I opened for those guys once, and they were dicks. Yeah, that's really not that surprising to me. They, yeah. but it was a long time ago. They were young. They might be really nice guys now, yeah. but they were total dicks. They were. They seriously were like, had their manager come and say, uh, "That bowl of corn chips is Interpol's." bowl of corn chips so can you guys stop eating those corn chips well they changed a lot i used to like them a lot better when they were called joy division that was uh, they did yeah. a thing with peter hook i know it's played out but um i i'm trying to i'm trying to f- find the thread and the opportunity to to, to jump 
can I jump around a little bit? Do you mind? Let's just jump. Let, don't find no. a thread. Just leap into the void. I'm trying, John. I know you find me scattered. I know other people find me scattered. And, and uh, I, I don't always get this opportunity with you. We've talked before about how we need to. What is that? What is that? Is that it's, it? my, it's my little bell that I keep on my desk so that when I need to reset, I go. And then. Is that right? Yeah. You hit a, really, and then I have re, this re, one if I really need to reset. Listen to that. You're in a totally different headspace. I have no, I have no context for wrapping my head around any of your bell-related activity. This sounds completely at odds. Detroit. Hmm. Ooh, that sounded like. A, could you please check me into this small motel? Bell. That's right. <laughs> That's right. How many bells do you have on your desk, John Roderick? Uh, on my desk right now, I just have those two bells. But uh, around the house, I have probably forty bells. Hmm. Oh. No, no, that's just that's, that's a pen on a glass. It's a pencil on an Incredible Hulk glass. Good job. Next question. Let's go to the lightning round. Um, gosh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. We we, we talked uh, a lot. We got to start this. Uh, remember the my talk, idea? The talk. My idea for a podcast. We still got to do this. Roderick on the line. It's just you and me talking on the phone. Once a week, we put it out. We got to do this. Are we doing that right now? Well, this is a, you're on a, you're on a podcast that I do right now, uh, oh. and so this is not precisely that. We're going to do a different podcast where we do the same thing. Yeah, eventually everyone will have several podcasts. I think eventually. I'm excited about it. I did a podcast the other day. Really? Did you make a pod? Did you do? Did you make an RSS? <laughs> it was somebody else's pod. I did make an RSS. Okay, I can I a, can I ask whose pod you were on? I did an online. Uh, it was a. <laughs> I had a pretty good online this morning. Yeah, had a lot of peas yeah, last night. I I I like I like doing onlines. Uh, it was a podcast called uh, Air Raid. A uh, young guy, indie rock guy up here in Seattle asked me to come do his podcast and talk nice. for a long time. He had it set up in such a way, though, that every time you moved your chair, the microphone would vibrate for like 30 seconds. Got a shock mount. I got a shock oh, mount oh, on oh. this thing. Well, he had a shock mount on it, hmm. and then he mount, he So the mic is on a shock mount, and then he mounted the shock mount to the table that we were both sitting at. So... If you if you if you t- if you hit the table with your hand, it it just it vibrated through the whole system. I was like, did you think about mounting that to something else? I, I'm going to send you a picture of my setup. I've got a uh, you know I got that Rode Podcaster and a shock mount. It's on uh, one of those little you know like little crappy ones you would use like to make a kick kick drum like with a really heavy bass but the little short yeah, boom. Hit, hit, hit your table right now with your hand. Okay. Okay, so you could hear the table, but I, I think you, you probably it didn't, didn't come through the mic at all. Okay, and then I, but the thing is, here's the real trick. Hang on. Okay, so this is as I've posted before. This is sitting on top. I'm trying to get a page count here. It's sitting on top of the giant size X Men uh, book. It's a two, it's on a two and a half inch book uh, from the classic period of of the X Men, and I think you're, that you're helps. pandering to your audience right no, now. No, I'm not. I, I haven't read the whole thing, but it. it uh, it uh, offsets, I think, a lot of the vibrations. Um, yeah, I have my speakers, my monitor speakers in my studio sitting on top of, both of them are on top of stacks of Beatles books, books about the Beatles, that is. <laughs> I can't get enough of those. You know, one of those, gosh, no, never mind, never mind, I'm going to be on top. Um, did, did you know that I'm on topic guy now? Did you know that? That's awesome. Mm-hmm. On, do you have a, let me guess, there's a post-it note above your desk that has written on in Sharpie, on topic, exclamation, exclamation point. 
I have incredibly chaotic drawings by my daughter that suck over my my desk. And I just keep, I stare at them and hope she'll get better someday. I want her to be better. That whole business about, you know, about kids being natural artists and, and the art, the artistic impulse is beat out of them by our by our uh, patri- or, uh, patriarchal society. Uh, that's it. Kids are terrible artists. Yes. And um, making art is hard work. And and if you're listening to this and you have a kid, mm-hmm. um, I would dis- I would discourage them not absolutely. in an obvious way, not in a mean way, but in a very subtle way. Yeah. I would just don't, go. Don't discourage yeah. them because you want better for them than the life of an artist no discourage them so that they get out of the way of actual artists who are working hard you're saying it's a signal signal to noise problem i think it is yeah I, there's, there's a noise i make a lot when my daughter does things i go Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny our, our kid goes to a, a, a pretty cool well, that's a very cool preschool it's a little co-op we uh we do and she um is it run by jewish people no it's not and it's also not run by hippies and it's not run by cultists which is different from almost every preschool I've been to. Like most of the other preschools, they want you to like read a book. Well, this is very interesting. You know, when the children want to be on the same swing, we let them talk about it and then we write their <laughs> names on a list and they, oh, shut <laughs> up. This place is very sensible, but you know, it's funny. One day I was in there on my work day and I saw uh, this thing on the wall and like so many great things in my life. First I was angry and then right. I thought it was awesome. And it was this big thing and admittedly a little hippie, and it's like something like how to talk to your kid about their thing they're drawing, their art or whatever. Uh, and at first I was like all like – because it was so antithetical to how I've been doing because I'm, I'm totally that – oh, my God, that's awesome. That's great. Right. Oh, my gosh, is that – that looks just – is that a face? It looks like – is that mommy or whatever? Yeah. I, I used to do that, and <laughs> it never like, – no. <laughs> no, we're still – she'd go, yeah. Oh, right. And so here's the thing. And I don't know if you uh, will find this useful with your youngster, but I, uh, well, what it said was um, instead, don't take a minute. First of all, take a minute and look at it and, and do not jump right into making um, a remark about what it quote unquote is, let alone making a value judgment. But let, you just say to them, wow, that's really cool. You made a bunch of red lines there and da-da-da and encourage them to talk about it. Now, at first, I thought that was really hippie and dumb. But I've, I've decided that that's actually a good idea yeah. because, because um, sometimes kids are just scribbling. You know? Right. No, it's a, it's a, I think it's an incredible idea. I mean, I, I actually try really hard, and this is a weird thing to say, but I try really hard not to say, good, good. I'm terrible at that. I'm ter- I do that all the time. Because, you know, why, why the f*** do, does she need me to, you know? I mean, I understand uh, there's a thousand people right now composing angry emails to you saying you need to say good to your kid. But, but uh, I think the, I think actually, uh, John, the conventional wisdom is increasingly to not do that. Yeah. And, you know, but you can go too far. I read something. That, you're always supposed to say, encourage the effort. Oh, you're supposed to encourage the effort. And I'm like, ah, eh. There's so many ways that, that my kid knows that I approve of her. Uh, that you know to ha- to do, I, it, it feels like it's just a reflexive action, like good, good, good. You know what I worry about? I, I worry about raising a kid that just worries about trying to please me. As much as I am incredibly self-involved, I worry that when I do that, it's not even so much I'm going to crush her artistic ambitions, like she's going to do whatever she does, but I do worry about her thinking the only yardstick for that is like whether other people thought it was good. Right. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. I think I think uh, one of the things that I that I appreciate most about 
my parents and particularly my mother was that <laughs> when when I was working on something like art, something artistically, you know, she would back out of the room and close the door. Um, there wasn't, she didn't sit there and say, what are you doing now? Well, what is that? Is that a tree? I mean, she didn't do any of that. And when I was done, she put it up on the refrigerator, but it, but there, there wasn't a, uh, she, she recognized that that was not necessarily another opportunity for, for parent child interaction, but that was actually, (laughs) it was your thing. That was what I was doing and I was fine, you know, like. Like, uh, let, let it ride. So. This is a new segment I call uh, Bizarra Marcia Roderick Theater. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. John? John? <laughs> is, is that about a space shuttle crash? <laughs> is that about the Challenger or the... Uh, I get it mixed up. Is it the, it's the Challenger, right? The what? The Commander thinks loud. Is, uh, is, is, is it's more... I actually had to Google this because I wasn't even sure which is which, but you're a little younger than me. That Was, was that about the was that about the, the Columbia or the Challenger, would you say? Um, the, um, if you can say, if you're comfortable talking about it. Uh, talk, I'm, I'm talking about, just so you know, first of all, you're, you're listening to uh, John Roderick, who uh, I will never admit is uh, my favorite uh, songwriter and artist today because he's a dick. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to tell me that. No. Because I'll be like, can I come stay with you in San Francisco for free for several weeks, Merlin? Oh, my God. I miss that so much. Artist. I would love it if your mom would take care of our stupid daughter and you would just come and hang out with me again. I miss it you know what? so much. Well, we, that's what we should do. We should put both of our daughters in a little box and yes. put it in my mom's living room. Not a mean and, box. Just like no, no, a no. nice box. My mom has nice boxes. And your mom uh, is so practical. I love your mom. She she's has, she's so she has, straight, and even when she talks, <laughs> even when she talks about how much she loves your kid, she's very, very, you know, very. I, we had a little visit when I accidentally called her number instead of yours, and she was so she seemed really happy, but she's also really like, yep, she's still her. She's still very practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she has a room in the basement for where she keeps uh, the good boxes for <laughs> like friends' kids. And then I get in has, trouble with my wife for keeping what I call "quote unquote" good boxes. You can't throw box. that out. That's a good box. That's a perfectly good box. <laughs> would uh, it? Um, would we be uh, going too personal to talk a little bit about? Uh, these things? Uh, well, no, no. So it, it, the, the song was about the, the space shuttle Columbia, which is one of two space shuttles that crashed. The other one being the Challenger. But the Columbia is the one that disintegrated on re-entry, whereas the Challenger is the one that disintegrated shortly after launch. Right. Um, and uh, so... Yeah, I've I've had very I've had very interesting relationship to this song just recently. I mean, I, I it was one of those songs you get lucky sometimes and you write a song that has the has the uh, capacity to make you cry multiple times as you're performing it, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, and I know that uh, all songwriters kind of there's one or two songs in their repertoire that if they really dig into it while they're performing it, they can they can get it can make them very emotional like it does the crowd. But uh, it's a, it, for for people who have not been with you since the very beginning, mm-hmm. uh, people I encounter, it's uh, it's a lot of people's favorite long winter song. Yeah, and 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 I understand that. I, it's a uh, it's it's somewhat atypical uh, of a long winter song in that it doesn't have any guitars on it, and it's uh, does it have literally three chords? The entire, it's the same. It's like a three, one. It's a one chords. One five four. The whole song. Yeah, for six minutes long. But um. And 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 it's atypical of a long winter song in that it's about a real 
event that's that was on the news. That's the one about a specific, uh, yeah. like a specific real world thing. It just seems yeah. like that's not your wheelhouse. Usually. Not normally, um, but this was this was a song. I, you know, the the uh, normally what I do is I I use metaphor to take a, take small personal events and turn them into bigger things that we can use to talk about talk about real feelings you know and and that's what metaphor is so good at you can you can say well that 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 girl stepped on my toe and if i wrote a song that was like that girl stepped on my toe it would it would be a a jack black song first of all but it would be not a very interesting song for the long haul um but so you so you, you utilize metaphor and you you turn your you know you turn the girl into the Hungarians and you turn your toe <laughs> into the, uh, the great, you know, the Banat and the great steppes of Central Europe. And all of a sudden you're writing a song that sounds very big and, and it's coming from a place that's very small. The Columbia was an event that was actual and big and you couldn't metaphorize it. You know, there, there was nothing you could, you couldn't, you couldn't use a metaphor because any metaphor you would use would be smaller than the actual thing. And as I was writing the song, I realized that you could, that the Columbia was an actual event that you could, you could both talk about it in really small, discrete, discrete little scenes. And it also it functioned as a kind of reverse metaphor. Like it, what happened to them on that spaceship and how that spaceship crash affected us all. It, it in little ways was like uh, a relationship breaking up or like, uh, you know, like one person's life kind of seen from beginning to end. And so it was, it was, um, it was sort of a reverse of, what what normal songwriting would look like? Yeah, and the absolutely, and that, that that chorus is is so memorable. Whatever those whatever five or six words of the chorus, but what else is there? there's that one line? Something like um, there's no words in the chorus. It just goes yeah. What do you yeah. call the? Oh, so what do you call it? Do you call it the coda? Like what do you call? Yeah, it? Yeah, the coda. Right. All right. Sorry. Um, <laughs> music guy, like you, like you know anything about, like you know anything about music. Um, but the part, the part that always gets me is the something like, uh, "Can you feel it? We're almost home." Something like that, which is like, it's just so like, there's uh, whatever. I'm being all Chris Farley, but it works on a lot of levels, uh, and also just that whole idea of, of um, this time when when America was so full of hope because of that impossibility of actually going from a John Kennedy speech to being on the moon in such an unbelievably small amount of time and all the like weird things on this timeline that they were able to hit to make that happen and then bring people back alive from space. It's, um, I don't know, I don't want to overanalyze it, but there, it works on so many levels as a, as, a, as a tragedy about so many things, and you know, not least of which is like, gosh, you can go and do this most amazing thing in the world, but like you're still, you can be so close and then it just blows apart. Yeah. Well, I, because I, and I think it's, it, it, it's rooted in the argument that people use to justify space travel, which is that human beings are natural explorers. And if we aren't exploring and, and reaching out into, into whatever the next realm is, then we're not fulfilling our, our destiny. Mm-hmm. And, and the reverse of that is that it is encoded in us all to, 
to recognize and empathize with somebody who has left the village and is and has been out you know to the Oregon coast or has been has walked uh to across Africa or, or you know have fa- found Stanley in the jungle or whatever we can <laughs> we can relate to that person and the idea that that person would be stepping off the train in their hometown and fall and get run over by the train while their wife and kids were standing there after having been gone uh, after having you know traveled with Lewis and Clark is is a kind of tragedy that certainly has happened a million times in in human history mm-hmm. and it it's uh, it's something we all feel very personally about you know so so you would think that writing a song about astronauts would be hard for people to to identify with um but in fact what they were doing was was incredibly human and and in in a little in in a small scale way applies to each of us as we every time we leave the house and go to work well, and make it home that's that's what art is it's metaphor it's um what's the word my teacher used to use it's metaphysical distance like if somebody wrote a song that was like i'm so sad that the shuttle crashed like that would not only have so much longevity but the fact that you abstract that a little bit but it's funny because like with so many of your songs uh i don't think you've had to educate me on what they're about and i've listened to them a lot sometimes just listening to them a couple times but uh it's always really interesting to me because you're uh and i think one of the reasons you you come across as so interesting to a lot of people is that you uh you do fake it pretty well as a polymath uh but but you are like somebody who (laughs) is sexual chemistry see god we gotta get that looked at uh you also are clearly a not just a student of history, but it seems like you're always kind of you're you're very knowledgeable about history. Was that, that wasn't your major? That was like your were you no you were English. Literature? My major was comparative history of ideas. Oh, that's right. This is, so, this is a fruity program at UW, right? Yeah. So it has the word history in it, but it, it but uh, history is is just a component of it. Yeah. But I'm an amateur historian, sure. Yeah. And and I and I enjoy it. I and I feel like history is. Isn't, ap- isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame though? How uh, a slight side route. It's just it's such a shame. I I feel really gypped about how I learned history, and I guess this is kind of a cliche or whatever. But it's there's a couple topics now that I'm I'm really super interested in that I'm embarrassed how poorly I absorbed it, and yeah. I have to at least partly blame it on the way that it was taught. And and two examples that jump to mind are mathematics and history. Yeah. Which I think, at least in the way that I learned it, I mean, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but like in, in both cases, it's amazing to me that you could take something as interesting as European history and turn it into things like, you know, memorizing what date the Treaty of Versailles was without understanding like what that really meant. Right. Truly in a hist- what you know, what the Treaty of Versailles meant looking backwards and especially looking forward, there's not many more interesting topics. <laughs> right. Right, right. That's absolutely true. And in retrospect, I just remember, like, well, I think they, what, they signed it on a train or something? Like, I don't remember. I don't know. They didn't, I'm thinking of the, um, I'm thinking of maybe the Civil You're War. thinking of when Hitler had, uh, oh, no, actually, they did sign it on a train car. Uh, and then Hitler used that same train car to, when France capitulated to him. And oh, God. That guy's good. He really was. He Talk about a master of metaphor. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But now we're talking about Hitler, and I'm going to get angry yeah, letters from yeah, Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens every time. Um. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that I think that that's true of everybody. You know, I I didn't learn history in high school, and and high school actually 
deprived me of what had up to then been a lifetime love of mathematics. Uh, you know, I started ninth grade thinking that, thinking and having been kind of reinforced in the belief that I was a math whiz. And by the end of 10th grade, I, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with math. And, um, and history and civics and, I mean, really, what's more interesting than physics? Physics taught by a, by a great teacher is it, it, it's the whole reason for school. And physics taught by a terrible teacher is like being waterboarded. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we could talk all for the rest of our lives about education and how we were wronged by the by the 50s textbooks that were still being used in the 70s when we were going to elementary school. I, and I, I don't think it's any better now. I honestly don't. I, mean, <laughs> I kind of doubt it. I mean, with <laughs> testing and stuff. But, you know, I've, I don't know if this is true, but I've, I've heard, heard it said that <clears throat> the only reason anybody really, really dies is because of a lack of oxygen. Like every way that you, whether you got stabbed. Are we talking about waterboarding now? No, it could be. Okay. But every way that you, that is the cause of your death, it's a, the real reason that you eventually die is because of a lack of oxygen. That's ultimately oh. the thing that really eventually kills you, supposedly. Oh. Um, that that's the you know the actual cause of death. Of every, I don't know if that's true, but um, and in the same way, I've heard that really, uh, <laughs> I've heard some people say that the, that everything is physics. That that when you really get down to it, almost everything that goes on is some kind of an abstraction of physics, which I think is a really interesting idea. And like, obviously, mm-hmm. physics itself combines you know different disciplines but i i see now me now i'm like the armchair engineer i don't know a thing about physics i never had physics i had geometry when i was a senior i mean you couldn't meet a more lamentable math idiot than me but now like whatever it's stuff like fractals and you know set theory and all this stuff is i have no idea what any of it means but i can tell if i had just the basic (laughs) basic ish skills that like i would get a lot out of that and that bums me out i think you can take classes online if you like, if you like onlining, oh, like a Phoenix University type situation. Well, actually, I think there are classes by eminent Yale professors that have been uploaded to the interweb, and you can just watch them. And you know that iTunes University is actually pretty great. There's there's um, a bunch of good stuff in there, free stuff, lots of great stuff from Stanford and things like that. But I took a physics class in college that was taught by one of the physicists from Hanford, which is the big, you know, the uh, the big nuclear reservation where they made the atom bomb here in Washington state. Wow. And this guy, you know, he was a real, uh, he was a real Feynman type of character, you know, this, uh, just brilliant physicist who had, who had been boots on the ground, hands, you know, up to his elbows in practical physics for his whole career. And now was teaching at, the university just because he loved it. And he would run around that class and climb up on tables. And, and, uh, it was one of the best classes I ever took. And it, it instilled in me a lifelong love of physics, which in high school, I got an F in physics because my <laughs> high school physics teacher was some ding dong that, that didn't know any physics herself. She was just, you know, she would, I think, read the book on her way to school in the morning and then like she needed the teacher's edition (laughs) yeah well she was teaching out of it you Mm -hmm. know and and doing these kind of dumb these dumb like okay here's a slinky now we're going to hit one end of the slinky and you're going to see the wave and it's like yeah i get it i've used a slinky let's get on with it you know 
but but uh, I took a college physics class and it was the greatest thing I ever did. I was terrified going in. I was like, this is going to be awful. And uh, this guy walks in and and from the first second he picked up a piece of chalk, I was like, oh, it matters who your teacher is. <laughs> right. So that brings us to the topic of homeschooling. <laughs> which I have to assume what, what, what? Which I have to assume you're a major proponent of and I am too and I suggest we start a, a charter school Marlon. I would love to be taught at a charter school I'm ready, I'm ready to learn would you teach at a charter school? I don't know what I would teach at a charter school I mean except, what, you uh, know uh, uh, mis- uh, misquoting, misquoting <laughs> literature what about productivity? <laughs> That would be a hell of a charter. You know, uh, uh, two, 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 two somewhat related things. First of all, did I ever tell you that my um, – which one was it? Now I'm getting confused. My, uh, my chemistry teacher in high school, did I ever tell you she was a finalist for the Challenger? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was on the news that night because this is a year after I graduated. I was living at my mom's house just half a mile away. And, like, she was out on the lawn at the school – with everybody else watching this because you know she was a big deal this is a big deal that she was a finalist for this and you know very very uh taciturn woman very you know quiet kept to herself sort of person and she um yeah she was there and just watched it can you imagine that can you imagine like talk about the ultimate like that that could have been me kind of thing wow other one i might have told you this before but this i don't know this seems to say something about something when i was in college you know, I went to a screwy liberal arts school and <clears throat> did mostly like, you know, literature, short story, poems, novels, whatever, all that kind of nonsense, Re- read the ambassadors or whatever. But um, on a whim, I took a, what they used to call physics for poets. It's called Nature of Modern Physics. It was taught uh-huh. by a physics teacher, but basically you read Adolf Baker, you read, you know, Einstein, you read, <laughs> I read Gary Zukav and the Dancing Wooly Masters and all that nonsense. But but, uh-huh. but but the thing that's interesting about this is, is I've said this in other places before, but there's something to this, I think. Um, the teacher was from, I think, Hungary. Um, he's really seemed like a weird guy to me. Uh, you know, he's a good, good teacher. But you know what's funny? This is my second or third, probably my th- maybe my second year, my second year. And, you know, like a lot of people, I really thought I was a great writer. You know, I was the features editor in high school, so obviously uh-huh. I must sure. be excellent. Sure, you fe- were- yeah, you don't get a position like that without being an outstanding writer. You were top um, shelf. Yeah, you know, it's funny though. <clears throat> I would when I I turned in uh, my first paper, and it was the most well. I gotta say, my I had one Vonnegut paper my first year where Mac Miller said, uh, "Say I'll never forget." He said that this part isn't this part curiously like whipping a dead mule with misplaced rhetoric. Uh, that should always stick with me. Uh, but but this physics teacher, he he tore it apart. He tore my paper Wait apart. Wait a minute, isn't that, isn't that a scene from Back to School starring Rod, Rodney Dangerfield? <laughs> Kurt, he hires Kurt Vonnegut. Yes, exactly. I have told you that story. I've told you my Vonnegut story. But but uh, Peter Peter Kazax, I think his name was, he yeah. tore it apart. He tore it apart, and he said, you know, there's all kinds of problems with this. There's, you know, grammatical problems. There's the structure, mostly, though, things like the structure and the actual, you know, building a case. Mm-hmm. The writing. The, the writing. He said it wasn't good. And he suggested, of all things, he suggested I go to this staff member 
who was the writing um, instructor. Like she wasn't even so ridiculous that she wasn't treated more seriously. But she's like, you got to go see Jan Wheeler. You got to go see her and you're going to you should go and and get some help with your writing. (laughs) And I I was I was speechless. I was like, you got don't you know, like who I am? Like, I'm. (laughs) but you know, what's funny? It's only in the service of saying like I went in and yeah, I ended up taking that as a class. I got a credit, you know, for taking that as a class. And she she just really whipped me into shape. Didn't make me a great writer, but made me a less crappy writer. But it's so interesting to me that I don't know if it was, I think that was probably the severest lashing I ever got for my writing in college. And it came from a physics teacher. Um, maybe the other ones were just being too nice or something, but like, it wasn't my stuff about Raymond Carver. It wasn't my stuff about Robert Lowell. It was my stuff about, you know, uh, quantum theory. Right. And I don't know, that seems really instructive. And I think there was actually a great quote, um, Vonnegut somewhere had said that if you want to find the best writers at Cornell University, don't go to the English department, you know, (laughs) go to the science department. (laughs) That's funny though. I mean, like, I, and then that helped me so much. And I, you know, I still. She made me read uh, Strunker White, which I hadn't read since high school. But then she also made me read this great book called William Zinser's uh, William Zinser book called On Writing Well. Yeah, you know, I have it right here about you know economy and uh, I, I. It was just so interesting because of all the educational stuff, like all the stuff I thought I was going to learn in college, the classes I took. It was weird how all this stuff snuck in in places that I never expected. I took a 20th century painting on a lark and it ended up being my favorite thing. And one of the things that's most memorable to me, you know, I, I don't know how much I remember of Moby Dick. I didn't think it was that interesting, but yeah. boy, every single class in 20th century painting, I was, I was just rapt attention the whole time. Well, I don't understand why, why our entire education from kindergarten to graduate school isn't treated that same way because that's absolutely true of everything I learned that I carry with me to this day. None of it was on somebody's syllabus uh, or, or was on the college prep coursework or whatever. All of it was, was found by accident and all of it was, I mean, during those classes where I was secretly reading a book propped in, 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 within the pages of the textbook that I was holding up so the teacher thought I was studying. When you were actually looking I, at Mad Magazine. <laughs> the, the Mad Magazine I was reading within, the, within my English book is the stuff that that made me who I am? It's it's the it's the education I ended up getting, and uh, you know my mom again to, to go back to my mom. I was telling telling this story last night to somebody, but uh, when I was in 1976, I was eight years old, and uh, I had a lot of questions. It was the Vietnam War had just ended, and I was. I was aware of that and Nixon had been impeached within the uh, couple of years before. And I was aware of that people, you know, in 1976, God, people still talked about Nixon. Um, Ford was the president, but Carter was running for president. I mean, I was aware of all these things and I had a lot of questions about them. And my mom got me a subscription to time magazine <laughs> when, when it was good. <laughs> Back when time magazine was a great, a great weekly news magazine. I mean, it was a middle brow magazine always, but, but it was, it was super well written and super well uh, researched. And dare but, but I say, but an eight it, or eight or ten year old could get a lot out of it. Perfect for an eight year old, right? And and what, when my mom got me the subscription to this magazine, what she said was, "You don't have to read every article. If you start to read an article and it doesn't interest you, don't read it. Move on to the next article. Just read the articles that you that are interesting to you." And so there was a lot, you know, the, that first year I got Time Magazine, I didn't read. Most of the stuff, I just, I would flip through it and, and look at the pictures and read the captions. 
And there was nobody there reading it over my shoulder. There was nobody there trying to read it to me. There was nobody there trying to explain it to me. I just sat and looked at the pictures and read the captions. And then pretty soon I started reading, you know, the, the feature articles that interested me. And, and if I, if there were cool pictures, I would start reading the article to, to put them together. By the time I was in sixth grade, I was reading time magazine every week. And, uh, that had more of an, that had, that, that gave me more of an education and it was almost entirely a, a process of self-selection that, uh, that probably from the outside looked like I was being given no guidance. And frankly, in the seventies, there were things in time magazine that were too sophisticated for me. There were, there were things that I read and that shocked me because I was being introduced to ideas that were above my pay grade, you know, that, uh, my mom had a subscription and there was one, I want to say 76, 77, 78 had an excerpt from that Howard Hughes biography, the tell all biography. Oh, uh-huh. and that's where I learned that he saved his urine. And it's still one of the most enduring images in my mind. Mm-hmm. I, 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 but you could graze, right? That was the point is there was nobody in there going, go write a report on, you know, Zimbabwe or something. And you could pull out the world book encyclopedia and start, you know, writing your five paragraph essay that grazing. I I, I mean, it's funny as much as we surf, we surf the web all day, but like how much do we then decide to go settle on this one thing for a while? Do you know, do you know what I mean? Well, and again, time magazine did not allow me to pursue threads that interested me. They put, presented they presented a dozen threads and i chose the ones that interested me but i i also had to wade through all these ones that didn't and surfing the web is a very different process i mean i i i'll do as i'm sure you do waste four hours on wikipedia just clicking through clicking through clicking through but always pursuing the thread that is the is at the you know the closest to the bullseye of my own interests and never I'm never or very seldom do I find myself on a page where I'm like, Oh, that thing you get with magazines when you're in a dentist's office where you're like, there is nothing else here to read. So I'm going to read this thing that I don't want to read. And you read it and you, and, and you're into something. Now you, now you know something you wouldn't have known otherwise on the internet. I find it's mostly like, and then I then then I found out where he went to college, and then I looked at the college, and then I looked at the dorms in the college, and then I looked at the admission process. And it's like, why am I looking at the admission process for Yale right now? Like, I'm following my own interests, but my interests have led me up a, a smaller and smaller tributary, and I'm learning stuff now, or I'm 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 following my own interest to something that's not producing any food for me so like uh broad but shallow broad but shallow particularly when you're talking about the education of someone from the age of five to 15 broad but shallow is what they is what they need and that's why that's why those history classes you talk about are so useless the the like learning the dates of the french revolution I mean, I've studied the French Revolution up and down, and I can't tell you any of the goddamn dates. 1789, that's the only date you need to know. You know, and, and when I studied the French Revolution in high school and in college, I probably had to memorize 10 dates around those events. 
um, which is a de- which is a degree of specificity that that a master's student in the French Revolution probably wouldn't have at ready hand. But you lose um, what, what you lose in all of that though is the story. You lose the story. Way. How did the Fre- where did the French Revolution come from? Where did it go to? Mm-hmm. Is the story, and that's the only story that matters. And and certainly until you have embarked on a PhD program, it's the only story anybody should ever try and tell. What is the, where did the American Revolution come from and, and where did it lead to? You know, where did, what, where did the nation of Germany come from and where is it now? You know, these are like topics that if you are a history teacher or if you are a history student, this should be what you do. You should be sitting Indian style on the floor and talking about this stuff. Like it's storytelling. And, uh, and I don't know, I think, I think the, the six to eight hours that kids spend in school a day is, is four to six hours of keeping them off the streets. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, they, it's a, such a cliche, but it's true. They're learning how to stand in line. It's, it's really, it's a, more like a socialization institute in a lot of ways. And I mean, and that, if I had a charter school, that's what it would be too, but you'd be getting socialized in a way different way. Yeah. With ACDC. You'd be getting socialized to respect and fear John Roderick first mm-hmm. and foremost. Sure. And I think more people need to learn that at a young young age. Well, they're going to learn it eventually and they could That's save right. themselves a lot of frustration. Save just, a lot of hurt going up against the big man. Let's be honest, for, for 51, some 51% of the audience, knowing about the sexual chemistry, even at a very young age, is going to help guide their decision making on a That's lot right. of levels. That's right. You know, I get a lot I'm of flack. Fight it, so. I get a lot of flack for being a dick about the morass... No. You wouldn't believe it, John Roderick. Um, I mean, like, I get really frustrated with the whole, like, I've got to follow the headlines. I've got to follow the news. i got to go just suck up all of this ephemeral information that's been packaged in this, these little morsels. But uh, you know what's funny is, like, when I have this argument with people, I, I eventually end up falling back on uh, – it's not a strategy I follow every week because I don't have a subscription. But I think y- you could learn more – from picking up The Economist and reading their whatever two to five, I forget how many pages, like about five, usually like three, four, five pages, like the week in review in international Great, that news. Is a, that is one of the best things in all periodicals, the, the, that, that first five pages of The Economist. Man, it's a nice, I think it's a nice, mm, it's reductive, but it's kind of a middle ground in what we're talking about here, which is that you are... I mean, let's be honest. You pick up a paper, any paper. You pick up the New York Times. You try to look at the New York Times after the 20th of the month, whatever. You look at that, and there's just so much stuff that's been, you know, chewed up for the news pipe, right? And, uh, but if you pick up that, that economist thing, it's going to give you the high level on there in a lot of ways, but it's, it's going to be about countries you don't know about. It's going to be yeah. about topics you don't understand. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to sound like, you know, uh, eat your beats or anything like that, but if you, if you really, if it is that important to you, to keep up to date. And your version of that is watching the crawl on CNN. Well, you can for damn sure take 20 minutes and read that every week. And now you're going to be like a grown up. You're going to be legitimately up to date on what's happening in the world. Frankly, I don't, I, I, I don't want to say I don't care about it, but like, I don't, it doesn't have an impact on me in an actionable way. Like it does. A lot of people pretend it does, mm-hmm. you know, just following like, you know, celebrity deaths and who's mad about politics this week. If you really, if that really does matter to you, then like, why wouldn't you just like take the time to do that in a high quality way? You know, instead well, of just you, looking you, at Google News or something, which is just a morass. You have to add an extra 15 minutes to it. I, I, I mean, I think that's what Wikipedia is for. You open up The Economist, you read the first five pages of it in front of your computer, 
and every word you don't understand and every idea that comes across your bow that that you're even slightly curious about, just Wikipedia the term and spend another two minutes reading a little bit deeper on the idea. I mean, I meet people, I mean, it's, it's the most common thing in the world right now. Everybody's got an opinion about Palestine, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And no one has even, a, you know, even a, 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 a penny turned on its side worth of depth of understanding of this, of, of the history of the situation. And I'm not saying that understanding the history of the situation helps you know what the solution to the problem is. But I think understanding the history of the situation keeps, uh, it, it, it effect, effectively tamps down at least my willingness to wade into an argument with every in a bar about the Palestinian situation because these, you know, people are just like, ah, nah, 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 nah. and I'm like, right. You, you're, you don't know, you don't know anything. And, and it's not hard. That, that's the problem that in America now knowing stuff, being educated is, is so equated in the popular culture with, with a kind of elitism and elitism is just completely equated with, liberalism and a kind of activist liberalism that wants you to eat your beets and wants to teach sex education to your five-year-old kids Mm -hmm. and wants to force those kids to become gay. Have the school nurses do abortions. Have the school nurses do abortions. So, so there's this cascading hatred for being informed that, that in, in, in one way, emotionally, I absolutely understand the, the, the vast majority of people in America, or I'm sorry, not the majority, but 50% of the people in America have felt for a long time that there was some smug uh, uh, university administrator at their local high school telling them that they couldn't spank their kids anymore, and they resent it, and they don't have the, they don't have the emotional elasticity to wade into it and, and, and deal with the gray area. They just reject the whole concept that somebody from the, from the local university should ever come to them and tell them how to do anything. And so you get, you get, uh, you get a world of people who resent the idea that there is information that they could have that would help them clarify their thoughts on topics that matter to them. Uh, and it's just, it's endlessly frustrating. I, 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 I encounter this all the time on Twitter. I'll send something out like, hey, everybody, why don't you try reading a book? Love, John. <laughs> and I'll get, I'll get 15 angry tweets back from people like, why don't you stop telling me how to live? Right. And it's like, I'm just saying, I'm not telling you how to live, man. Seriously. Um, just suggesting that you might like a book to read sometimes. No, you're not doing that. You're trying to take my kids from me. And this also, I think, gets back to some stuff we were saying more toward the beginning, but there's also just this... I hate to make this sound like something where I'm saying, oh, the media pushes this on it, whoever the media is. But there is, there is first of all, a focus. There's a focus on conflict, always, because that's a story should be about conflict, according to a lot of people. But it's also about... Um, it's also about just this constant uh, dualistic approach to everything where there's conservatives and liberals or there's this and that. And 
Yeah, maybe I'm a contrarian, but I think that that is limiting in ways that most of us have never really even completely thought about. If we really think about how limiting that is, I mean, here's the thing. Things happen in the world. And probably relatively careful. Well, I'm just saying, like, like maybe. (laughs) I mean, there are some things where you couldn't really, you know, trace the provenance of an action and say, "Well, that's because a liberal wanted to do this thing," or "That's because." Well, that's really. um, I I just I feel like that's that's such an incredibly narrow way to see the world. Instead of having enough of a critical eye to go, "Well, no, that's just a thing that happened," and I'm going to have to look at it in context with other things. Instead of constantly trying to square this, um, d- you know, double entry accounting of trying to figure out where whether which one of these tribes this fits into, and, and yeah, there are tribes, there are, but there's, but it's there's maybe there's you know, it's like like in, like I was like you say in Israel where you you don't have two you know, opposing sides. You might have 19. You got to have these coalitions. And I just think in the U.S. there's just always this, this could be, again, the narcissism of minor differences. We're always looking for who we align ourselves with. And I think that's fine if you, if you, if that makes you happy, like you can pick what pro wrestler you're really into or whatever. (laughs) But I think it's extremely limiting in trying to see the world clearly to, instead of seeing facts and events in and of themselves, uh, and, and then really square them against the context for what else is happening. Like that to me is like the, the beauty, like a liberal arts education teaches you how to wander around a library and then wonder how something might be not what it seems to be. <laughs> I think, I think that's a big part of it. And I, I guess I just wish that there wasn't always this constant feeling of like, Ooh, that Ann Coulter, I'm going say Ann Coulter's a pro wrestler. Like when you're getting mad at her, you might as well be getting mad at the iron sheik. She's making an entire career out of making you angry. And like, why would you, why would you keep feeding into that? You know, yeah. I, Michelle Bachman. Okay, I get it. You don't like Michelle Bachman. Like, how are you going to dissuade people from the Michelle Bachman project by yelling on Twitter? It's, eh, 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 eh. it's this is all boring rehash of stuff, but I'm just glad we're so much better than other people. Well, it's true. John, John Roderick, this is long. I've got this giant list of things I want to talk to you about that we'll probably have to save for our, our, uh, our imminent future podcast yeah we'll save it for the merlin uh, talks to john podcast get roderick on the line i think it should be called roderick on the line and we we should start making that very soon because otherwise i would have to go back to work doing my own thing and that's well we'll talk about that but let's avoid that for now Uh, like, like all of our conversations this one must end because i have to urinate and i have to imagine that you probably do too that is how a lot of our conversations end isn't it even or or you've got to catch, catch a flight or somebody has to go to the bathroom. That's pretty much it. That's right. That's right. It's usually you have to go to the bathroom and I have to catch a flight. Yeah. I, I can ruin a bathroom. I can ruin a flight. You can, I've been in that van. <laughs> you've ruined that van. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your, uh, in your basement, John. It's, it's a gift. Well, there, there's some suggestion that I eat too much sausage. I, I, can't, I can't, don't even know how to process that sentence. I don't know how to process that sausage. That's like you you robble robble too much. I just I don't even hear the words in that sense. All right, all right. Uh, John Roderick of the Long Winners, uh, inspiration and uh, bon vivant raconteur, uh, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> durian. Uh, um, if you uh, until until your um, the, the next contribution, musical contribution to your oeuvre is uh, ready to drop, as we say in the rap business. What, uh, where would you like people to uh, visit with what you do? They should follow you on the Twitter at uh, or not, at John Roderick? No, they should absolutely follow me on the Twitter. If they okay. don't, they're being irresponsible. Hmm. Um, I think they're just hurting themselves. But yeah. also, I mean, if you're interested in 
If you're interested in any of the topics that we've covered today, I have a visit your visit your local library. I have a visit your local library or my online store where all of these quotes can be purchased on a t-shirt. Um, well, is that is, is Twitter the best place to find out what you're up to? You uh, will link to things. Also, is that the best uh, conduit? Uh, the longwinters.com is uh, is is my website, and that but but uh, but because the long winters haven't produced a record in several years, that website has it's not dormant exactly, but uh, but it, it, I think there's still a message board community that uh, I that think I'm, I think I'm hosting it. I I should uh-huh. look at that. Uh-huh. You know but, Ben's uh, busy. Ben's busy now. He can't update those sites like he used to. He's gotten very yeah. very busy. Yeah, yeah. He is a busy man. Yeah. But no, I I you know I think Twitter is a good first. A first place to look, but I, you know, I'm, I, I often don't, I don't tweet about things until after they happen. Sometimes, I mean, you know, basically, if you want to find me, good luck. Yeah, you got, I'm not one of those people that's like, I'm on the internet. Come look at me all the time. Sure, you are. Well, you didn't used to be. You like you make a big game, but you're you're like strep. You're like a strep virus. You're just you're just kind of around. Yeah. Sometimes you're on doorknobs. Yeah, you can catch me on a toilet seat. Hey, catch me at the toilet seat. The la- <laughs> near some, and after that, I'll be at the Laugh Shack. A- AJ, AJ Giggleheimers. Yeah, people are stupid. John Roderick uh, from the Long Winters, thank you very much for your time. Um, is there anything you'd like to part with to say uh, anything, parting words to the Back to Work audience? Well, I feel like you guys ought to get back to work, and um, I hope this has been enjoyable. And uh, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reset you. We're done here. I love you. Love you too, Merlin. Bye-bye.